1: Bring in show music, please.
2: Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on Squawk Pod. Avoiding default. Debt ceiling negotiations coming down to the wire. Ohio Senator J.D. Vance says it's between two leaders.
1: The Senate Republicans can't really drive this process. The Senate Democrats can't drive this process. This is between McCarthy and Biden and they need to come together and offer a deal.
2: Also on President Biden's agenda, replenishing the strategic petroleum reserve. White House Energy Advisor Amos Hochstein.
3: We have the SPR for a very good reason. We need to keep it there to use it in cases of emergency and to safeguard the U.S. economy.
2: Plus, Home Depot's ugly quarter. And Elon Musk now looped into the Jeffrey Epstein story via bank J.P. Morgan, CNBC's Eamon Jabbers reports.
4: The only thing that could short circuit that is if J.P. Morgan decides to just settle this thing and, and write a check and say, you know, we're just not going to participate in this anymore.
2: It's Tuesday, May 16th, 2023. SquawkPod Pod begins right now.
1: Stand Becky by. In three,
4: two, one. Cue, please.
2: Good morning, everybody. Welcome to
5: Squawk Box here on CNBC. We are live from the Nasdaq Market Site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. And if you take a look at what's. Been-
2: First up today on the podcast, Home Depot's ugly financial quarter. The home improvement company reported its first earnings decline since the beginning of the pandemic and its biggest revenue miss since 2002. It's the largest drop in revenue since the financial crisis, and it is all to do with demand. Consumers just aren't improving their homes. Not as much as they were anyway. Immediately on the report's release, Home Depot's stock dropped 5%, before the market even opened. Now, that drop is significant. Home Depot is the most important retailer in the Dow, nearly double the weight of Walmart. Home Depot is also more heavily weighted than Walmart in the S&P 500 index. So any hit to Home Depot is a hit to the entire stock market. Now, let's get back to Becky.
5: Guys, let me tell you very quickly, Home Depot, yeah. it stocks off pretty sharply right now, and it's because earnings are out. The earnings actually came in better than expected on the bottom line, 382 versus 380. The revenue was a miss, 37.2 billion versus the 38.28 billion estimate. The big deal, though, is the guidance that they're giving for the full year. Comps, by the way, for the quarter were down 4.5% versus down 1.6% for an estimate. But for the full year, the company is now saying that it expects revenue to be down 2 to 5%, before this, it had only been looking at down 0.7% for the estimate. Uh, for the full-year earnings, earnings per share, they're now looking for down 7 to 13%. Uh, the estimate before had been down, for five, down 5.7%. And as a result, you see that stock down 3%, down 4%, bouncing around a little bit. You also see the Dow futures now off by about 115 points uh, versus the down 40 or 50 when the show started. I
6: mean, the, the current quarter, that sales... That that same stores they haven't had minus four and a half percent in a while. That's not good. They have. They, they actually
5: point that yeah, out. Look, yeah, yeah, Also,
6: the outlook is, is not great. And and macro, Austin Golesby was like, yeah, I wanted to go up twenty five. It looked like a hostage tape. Um, so I I don't know really whether. Um, and Paul Tier Jones called him out. Yeah, he did. Yeah,
5: yeah. Right um, there, right
7: here right after that. He did. Ted Decker, 100%.
5: who is the chairman, the president and the CEO, says our sales for the I quarter were below our expectations primarily because of lumber deflation and unfavorable weather, particularly in our western decision, decision as there was some extreme weather in California that they said disproportionately impacted their results. However, the guidance for the year goes well beyond this quarter and what weather they're anticipating with this. Ooh. did point out that it was a three-year period of unprecedented growth for the sector, during which they grew sales by over $47 billion, but they I do expect that this would be a year of moderation for the home improvement market. It mortgages
6: yeah, didn't help. Yeah. but you know how quickly, if Fed, Fed acknowledges that there are lags to their effects and they're not there. Do right. you know how quickly like a lag can become real? I mean, it, it can it, it could be a, a week and we decide, oh, my God, you could get go from they got more to do to they went too far in a week. In well, this, this is the
5: week that we get the retail, retail earnings. So you might hear a bit more concern right. about the consumer coming out this week. This obviously is the first of those big reports.
7: Let's get an update right now on the debt ceiling ahead of today's expected meeting between President Biden and congressional leaders. Speaker, speaker Kevin McCarthy said negotiations are nowhere near a deal. Both sides have said they hope to reach an agreement before the weekend as scheduling hurdles will make things more difficult. Now, President Biden expects to leave tomorrow for a week-long trip, international trip. And The House and Senate scheduled to be in session simultaneously for just one more week this month. So everything was going swimmingly, and now it's not going swimmingly? It's never going swimming. No, but I'm saying yesterday, if you remember,
6: I think at this hour, we were talking about how he was very optimistic. They got to do something. They got to do something. Mm -hmm. But when McCarthy and Biden met in in February, McCarthy, the prospects for him getting a deal were slim to know with with his caucus. And so two, three months went by. Then it happened. And now here we are. And and President Biden's headed to Japan for, for a week. I mean, this is... You know, waiting 90 days, thinking that there's going to be a clean deal because this guy's not going to be able to get a, a bill passed. Then it gets passed, you know, 80 days into it. I don't know the response. I don't, I don't know. Both sides I, Now are it's scary.
5: Both sides are pretty entrenched. Yeah. yeah, but... doesn't leave a lot of room for
6: one side has been saying please talk please 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 cuz now we are in negotiations so if they were going to you know and to say we're not going to negotiate pushing on biden it's saying that they're not going to vote sides. for
5: anything if he agrees to, in to their program they don't have all so they
6: got to do story. is get the normal democrats and the normal republicans it's a shrinking pool of people if you do it <laughs> with both you can do it if you do it with both that's what it's supposed that's the, the way solvers. it's supposed to happen Problem solvers on on both sides. You get uh,
5: the problem solvers is a by is, is a is a caucus of two of two, but they have not been as effective as we would have.
6: Congressman, thought. Congressman Josh years is part of that. Yes, he is. The U.S. of Virgin Islands issued a subpoena to Elon Musk in the Jeffrey Epstein lawsuit against JP Morgan Chase. Eamon Javers joins us
4: now with more. Hey Eamon. Good morning, Joe. That's right. Elon Musk's name has been connected to the investigation into Jeffrey Epstein. For the first time yesterday, as a new court filing revealed that a subpoena has been issued to the Tesla CEO, the subpoena comes in the ongoing U.S. Virgin Islands lawsuit against J.P. Morgan, which alleges that the bank allegedly turned a blind eye to Epstein's sex crimes because of his enormous wealth and a referral network of ultra-high-net-worth men. In the filing, attorneys for the USVI write, Upon information and belief, Elon Musk, the CEO of Tesla Inc., among other companies, is a high net worth individual who Epstein may have referred or attempted to refer to J.P. Morgan. But the filing also says the USVI hired a private investigator to track down Elon Musk and serve him with the subpoena. But that effort has not been successful. The USVI wants the court to now authorize alternative service methods to get the subpoena to Musk because deadlines in the case are looming. Now, guys, all of this comes ahead of the deposition of J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon, which is expected in New York on May 26th. So the question there will be, what involvement, if any, did Dimon personally have in the decision to keep Epstein as a client of the bank despite his sordid track record? And late last night, we got a response from Elon Musk himself on Twitter. Here's what Elon Musk wrote in response to a CNBC story about this on CNBC.com. He said... This is idiotic on so many levels. That cretin never advised me on anything whatsoever. The notion that I would need or listen to financial advice from a dumb crook is absurd. And three, JP Morgan let Tesla down 10 years ago, despite having Tesla's global commercial banking business, which we then withdrew, I have never forgiven them. So some strong feelings here from Elon Musk in response to this subpoena. Uh, what Musk doesn't say uh, in that tweet is whether or not he's going to allow service of the subpoena and whether he's going to respond to it uh, in due course. We'll see whether that happens, guys. Back over to you.
6: All right. Very uh, good, Eamon. Um, you like being on that Epstein beat, Eamon? Uh, if it's Epstein, it's Eamon. That's, that's what we've That's uh, what we kind of found lately. But it's it's pertinent. And it's is it ever going away? I don't think it is. It's like evergreen.
4: I mean... We, we could be, in this case alone, uh, we could be talking about through the end of the year, right? I mean, we've got the Jamie Dimon deposition, which is coming up, uh, and then we've got months and months to sort this all out. The question is going to be, well, the only thing that could short-circuit that is if J.P. Morgan decides to just settle this thing and, and write a check and say, you know, we're just not going to participate in this anymore. Uh, we, we don't see any indication of that, uh, at least so far. So I think this could be going on for months, Joe. Yeah, it's an important story. Yeah, it is. Uh, I just wonder so bizarre to, to
5: settle. settle settle with staley is that what they'd have to do amen
4: well they'd have to settle with uh the u.s virgin islands right who are yeah. the the plaintiffs who are suing them say and the, the allegation from the u.s virgin islands is look you guys at jp morgan had all these indicators of sex trafficking you have all sorts of systems designed to, to track and alert you if there's sex trafficking going on all that was happening inside the bank you made a decision to let him inside the bank as a client anyway Uh, J.P. Morgan argues, hey, wait a second, if you say we should have known you're the U.S. Virgin Islands, he was there, you should have known, you know, how dare you come after us and say uh, we were negligent here when it was the U.S. Virgin Islands government that should have been doing something about this. So that's the argument in the case. Uh, And then, of course, J.P. Morgan has now sued Jess Staley, their own former executive, saying uh, it was ultimately it was all down to him. Uh, as the person who had the closest personal relationship uh, with Jeffrey Epstein. You know, Jess Staley, at the time he was at J.P. Morgan, uh, was going to Epstein's island, was sending emails back and forth with pictures of young women with Jeffrey Epstein. They had a very close personal relationship between the two men. Uh, And so J.P. Morgan says, well, it's not the bank, it's this one guy. So they are...
5: In the meantime, you're going to get more and more depositions and more and more information. And, and a lot of high-powered
4: people, including Elon Musk, are finding their names tangled up in this thing as the U.S. Um, Virgin Island is sending off subpoenas to say who knew what, when.
5: Name after name um, after, after name that the Virgin Islands are coming after.
4: Yeah, and they're alleging that what was happening here was even after the J.P. Morgan pushed Jeffrey Epstein out of the bank, they still had a relationship with him because he was referring all these rich guys uh, as potential clients to the bank. The allegation is that J.P. Morgan thought that was such a valuable stream of referrals that they kept having a relationship with him, even though they knew about his sex trafficking and his criminal past. Uh, A lot of the people who are allegedly the people who were referred are now getting subpoenas. That's why Elon Musk has been dragged into this thing. And then you see his reaction to it. They sold the islands.
6: They sold it finally, Eamon. I know you saw that. It's going to be a resort. Yeah. So what do you say? I'm going to to this great resort. It's on Epstein's Island or I I don't know. I don't know. Is that good or bad that you're going to Epstein Island for a resort? Do you you sell it that way or do you... uh, change Something the whole, tells
5: me they'll change the I mean, name, I, but... They
6: won't. They're going to change the name, but you still know where you're going. They're going to have to demolish every building on that place, right? right? It, the, I mean, walking around there.
1: Thanks, right. Eamon. Cheese will be next.
2: Next, on Squawk Pod, the U.S. Department of Energy is buying oil to replenish the country's strategic petroleum reserve. The man known as President Biden's energy whisperer, Amos Hochstein, explains the administration's oil strategy.
3: The difference between this year and last year is also that the market understands that despite the fact that Russia was part of the war, the price cap has allowed us to keep Russian products on the market, so supply is there, while restricting the revenue.
0: at aarp.org slash moneytools.
2: What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with P. Jim, a leading global asset manager. This is Squawk Pod, here's Joe Kernan.
6: The Biden administration is gonna buy three million barrels of crude uh, to help refill the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Last year's record sales drew down uh, the stockpile to its lowest level since 1983. Join us now, Amos Hochstein, Special uh, Presidential Coordinator for Global Infrastructure and Energy Security. It's a fascinating, um, the whole SPR is fascinating, Amos, and, and we, we need to worry about when it's half full or when it's been depleted, is the infrastructure in great shape to be refilled at this point? Is, is that something
3: to worry about? Well, good morning, Joe, and you're right, we should be uh, keep being concerned about the uh, the SPR and making sure that it's a strategic asset that we can continue to use uh, as you know as you noted the president took the decision uh, just as the war started to uh, respond to the emergency and uh, reduce some of our to release oil from the SPR to support the economy which worked well uh, and now that we are in a position where we can replenish it we should the physical structure is in is in good shape uh, it's undergoing maintenance uh, for the last few months and will continue to uh, but we are now able to uh, to start releasing uh, to start buying sorry oil back into the SBR it's a small uh, start three million barrels but this is the beginning uh, over the next several months to try to do what we can to get as good a deal as possible in this price environment
6: when you uh eventually leave the administration and go on to the private sector, are you, are you gonna say, look at my timing and how I did this? I could be a, an oil analyst. What, what, <laughs> what, was the, what was the average price? I mean, I, I'm not saying it's serendipitous uh, almost, but the, to see all the cuts that we saw from OPEC Plus and all the things that could have really, you know, the war uh, and everything else, I mean, we could be, I guess that, that uh, skeptics said, it could be at a, we could be refilling it at $150 a barrel. Instead, where, where was it sold? An average price of about 95, and we got a chance to buy it back. That's almost like you're a trader. Buy high, <laughs> buy low, and, and sell high. You sold high, you can buy low. You, get, well, you, got your think, resume, you got your
3: resume ready for Goldman Sachs? Joe, I think that President Biden wanted to do two things. One was to secure the U.S. and the global economy during the turmoil of last year. Remember, we were at 120, above $120 a barrel uh, at one point. Uh, We took the decision, a number of decisions, the SPR was only one of them, Uh, but to really make sure that to bring down inflation that we're seeing now uh, that was, you know, really oil prices and which affect food prices were really uh, affecting inflation rates. We brought down the price of oil and price of gasoline uh, and electricity and food for the consumers, Uh, and now that we sold it at 95 and able to buy it back at roughly $70 dollars, uh, which is what we said all along. If you remember back in October, uh, I came on your show and we talked about somewhere between you know 67, 72, 73 dollars was our target price uh, to buy it back. Uh, it took us a little longer because Congress mandated us to sell oil actually this this year, so we had to uh, we have to complete that sale, which will take uh, still a few more weeks or several more weeks to complete. Uh, and once we're done with that, we're able to start buying. Uh, we have to make sure we're doing it in a way that is uh, that is safe and for the uh, SPR itself and make sure that we're good stewards of that infrastructure. Uh, but that's this is the beginning. And we're later this year, we'll will continue to buy more and significantly more than that into next year. But I want Joe, I just want to note we were before we ever started releasing oil from the SPR, we were mandated by Congress to sell over the next several years, 140 million barrels. And we worked with Congress to uh, to void those uh, that mandatory sale. So in effect, we pretty much have bought back uh, 140 out of the 200 or 180 to 200 that we that we that we released. So I think we're trying to do this at at as good a deal as possible for the American people uh, and selling at 95 and buying at 70. I think uh, I think that is as good a deal as you can get.
6: So how far do you have? How far do you have to go at this point to get back to what what we would see, say is an optimal level? How many barrels? How many million?
3: Well, I think earlier uh, this year we talked about over the next year buying in the 60 million. I think Department of Energy talked about buying another 60 million on top of what we're doing now. Uh, I think that we'll con- we have to make sure we have the financial resources to be able to continue to buy. We'll work with Congress on that, uh, and uh, I think that we should make sure that we are at a level that can address future uh, disruptions. What we've learned is that we have the SPR for a very good reason. We need to use it, keep it there, to use it in cases of emergency and to safeguard the U.S. economy. And uh, that's that's something that we did this past year. The president was yep. resolute. And remember, people didn't just criticize uh, the decision as far as and, and predict that we'll be buying at 150. They didn't they didn't think the SPR releases would work in the first place. and I think so far we've done a pretty good job of this.
6: Depends on it. It, it's, it may turn out that it was really um, pretty good, which you don't see a lot in government. Um, but but the other thing was that they uh, the criticism, it, it's not I mean, is the economy and inflation, is that an emergency or is that, you know, where you're going to actually have to you know, turn off people's uh, electricity. Is that is that the emerge or, or there's going to be gas lines? Uh, so an emergency is in, you know, is inflation? I guess you can argue that it was that was that was what uh, people said at the time. Uh, I think, uh, Joe, you uh, have
3: to look at the root cause of what it, it's not about is the price high or low. That's not what we're talking about here. We went from roughly $80 a barrel to about $120 a barrel in when there was no impact no changes to the fundamentals of the oil markets of supply and demand that all happened because a war erupted in europe <laughs> involving uh the uh right second or third largest oil producer in the world and freaked out the markets. So, almost, these, if,
5: if, if, if prices go back up again this summer, I guess that's the question. Will it, right. will it change anything? It, the driving season, you get into that. There's still a war that's taking place. If, if prices go back up, if WTI, let's say, goes back to 90, 95, even 100
6: Right. Will you be part of the problem? Will, that
5: be, will that be considered an emergency and say, forget it, we're not going to refill it or, or we're going to start releasing again? What, what is an emergency?
3: So, look, again, I'm saying the, the emergency is not sometimes is not just a high price itself. It's looking at the root cause of what's what is happening. I for right now, the where we are today, if you look at the projections for we're already at the beginning of what is considered to be uh, the seasonal driving season where we already have a uptick in in demand. Uh, we are still looking at what's happening in the demand in China, what's happening in demand in the United States uh, and how the economy is is shaping up. I don't see a, a big surge in prices coming uh, this summer in such a way that will threaten where we are. So we're in recently good shape, which is why we're taking the decision. Uh, and the Department of Energy announcing a, a buying back some of the oil into the SPR, and we're going to continue to do that so that we can uh, address emergencies. Look, I think the difference between this year and last year is also that the market understands that, despite the fact that Russia was uh, part of the war and the the remarkable sanctions the price cap has allowed us to keep Russian products on the market so supply is there while restricting the revenue and we've chosen to have that kind of approach that will stabilize the markets for the global economy so that we're not rewarding Putin twice
6: Uh, almost even though it it, it, as I said and and I'm not saying it's serendipity but it, it it ended up working out but that's not gonna keep Republicans from saying uh, we need some oversight on how the SPR is managed. They're still going to complain that, you know, it was arbitrary. It, it, you are able to sell high buy low, that may end up being the result. But they're still going to uh, criticize the, the sort of arbitrary... <laughs> why are you laughing?
3: The other side doesn't... Why am laughing? The other side doesn't... Well,
6: you got, lucked out. Come on.
3: You lucked out. Come on. I love this. We make a decision. The president <laughs> takes a decision that is really difficult. Uh, to do 180 million barrels over it six months. I Everybody said it's says it's not going to work and criticizes. Then it works. And people I'm say, well, that it's that's out. just luck. <laughs> I'm in shock it's working. <laughs> you, you know, no, part I'm of glad. being I'm president, happy. part of being president, Joe, is making tough decisions on the behalf know, of, the, of the economy when people criticize you. At Look, the very I'm, least, I think the other side can come and say, you know what, we were wrong. The president managed the energy economy quite well in the face of the war. And I think that's where we are now. And we're going to continue to do what's right for the American people and what's right for the for the economy. I'm
6: I'm still upset you ghosted me on the White House correspondence Dinner. So, you know, don't what happened there? What happened? You got a better you got a better offer. What I didn't get back. I was talking
3: to I was talking to Andrew. So that's it. That's it. And that hurts.
6: All right, Amos, uh, thanks. We haven't seen you in a while because you haven't been able to buy any back. You're afraid to come on, but now you're... (laughs) (laughs) good, Good to have you on today. Thank you.
3: Thank you. It's good to see you all.
2: Coming up, the latest in Washington. Silicon Valley Bank's former CEO Greg Becker is set to testify before the Senate Banking Committee. Republican Senator J.D. Vance on what he's planning to ask.
1: You paid yourself a $3.5 million bonus two weeks before your bank failed. Did you know at the time that the bank was in serious trouble? And if you didn't know, what the hell were you doing?
2: Plus, the rest of the D.C. drama, including the latest on the debt ceiling showdown. That's all on Squawk Pod right after this. You're listening to
5: Squawk Pod.
7: Up on Becky Q.
5: Welcome back to Squawk Box. This is CNBC, and we are live from the Nasdaq Market Site in Times Square.
7: I'm Andrew Ross Sorkin, along with Becky Quick and Joe Kernan. Later this morning, the Senate Banking Committee is going to be looking into the failures of Silicon Valley and Signature Banks. Former SVB CEO Greg Becker, former Signature Bank Chairman Scott Shea, and former Signature. Bank President Eric Howell will be answering questions about what went wrong at their institutions. Joining us right now to talk more about that here in Ohio, Senator J.D. Vance. He's a member of the Banking Committee. And good morning to you, Senator. Uh, let's talk about it. Uh, what, what are you trying to find out from them? And how much is it, in your mind, a, a problem of what took place at those banks specifically versus policy and maybe the supervisors?
1: Well, I think clearly these guys were way overexposed to long-term interest rates. That's what happened with Silicon Valley Bank and I think to a lesser extent Signature Bank. Uh, But to me, what I'd like to understand, because we're looking at clawbacks legislation here at the Senate Banking Committee, whether we should basically take some of the money that these CEOs paid themselves out as their banks failed and try to get some of that back, especially because taxpayers are implicitly picking up the tab here. So question number one for me for Silicon Valley Bank's Greg Becker is going to be, look, you paid yourself a three and a half million dollar bonus two weeks before your bank failed. Did you know at the time that the bank was in serious trouble? And if you didn't know, what the hell were you doing?
7: You just talked about the idea of clawbacks, and the big question in this context is: My understanding is that, and you also talked about taxpayer funds. This really is the FDIC that's managed
1: this thus far. How,
7: How do you how do you square that circle?
1: Yeah. So 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 here's the basic problem, right? So the FDIC pays for these uninsured depositors. That's the way that Marty and others at the FDIC have set up the system. Uh, but that, that that FDIC fund is paid for by regional and community banks, and of course that is borne by our taxpayers in the form of higher fees at millions of banks. Excuse me, thousands of banks all across our country. So yeah, it's going to be borne by taxpayers, not directly, but this will see an increase in the basic costs of banking right. by our small oh, businesses, disagree by our with middle-class you. families the, all across the country.
7: Gets, of course, it gets passed on to the customers, but I, I would think that that the way the FDIC works, it's an insurance program. It's about as sort of free market a system as you could have. The question is, where's the government's role or not on the clawback side of this?
1: Well, I think the basic argument is you cannot have these CEOs who run their banks into the ground but benefit personally in the process. I don't think that's a free market system. I think a true system, I mean, the good thing about a free market system is accountability, that you suffer consequences for screwing things up. And there's clearly been a failure here when these banks are able to pay the CEOs large sums of money or have the banks offload a ton of stock right before the bank effectively crashes into the mountain. That's a serious, oh, serious Senator, problem. Again, it's something with you. that I think creates I don't risk disagree with you at all. in our banking system. But, but the
7: question is, is it the role of government to do it, or is it the role of shareholders, debt holders, to effectively sue uh, what's left of the company or the individuals directly,
1: civilly, for the money back? Well, look, I'm happy for the shareholders to sue, but I also think it's our job to v- provide some proper oversight here, and we know, you know, we all know here that shareholders have relatively limited options after these banks have been run into the ground. I think it's important for us to do something proactive here and make it clear to the CEOs while they're making these decisions. If you turn your bank into a disaster zone, you're not going to get a fat paycheck from it. If you turn your bank into a successful enterprise, by all means, pay yourself a fat bonus, uh, but not if you run your bank into the ground.
7: Sarah, where do you land on the idea of deposit guarantees? Effectively, um, whether it's codified in law or not, we have implicitly, if not almost explicitly, guaranteed depositors their money. Is that, and, and then you, you also people talk about personal responsibility. Where, where are the
1: two, where are the two ideas land? Well, look, I think most people, when they're banking at a bank, they don't think that they're loan- lending the bank a ton of money. But, of course, that's how it works in our system. I really think that we need to have federal deposit guarantees. We need to make sure that people don't get completely hosed when you have a bank collapse. The, the, the problem is that we need to have that proactively, not reactively. The problem that I have with how the FDIC handled Silicon Valley Bank and, and, and Signature is that they effectively changed the rules in the middle of the game. If we're going to have FDIC insurance, and we should, it should be clear about where the rules are, where the lines are. We can't change those things and increase the implied deposit guarantee in the middle of a bank panic. I actually think that makes things worse. It adds risk to the system if people assume that the Fed is going to step in, the FDIC is going to step in and guarantee every uninsured deposit. That uncertainty and that implied assumption of risk is a big driver, I think, what's going on in the banking system today.
6: Senator, the... Uh there's been a lot of uh, conjecture that, that maybe regulators dropped the ball. They and they were there. They they even knew about the mismatched uh, liabilities. Um, it was the San Francisco Fed to some extent, and, and they've had. I don't know whether you have a, an opinion on this, but a lot of the the recent papers emanating from uh, from from the Fed out there has been managing climate risk. A lot of bragging about managing climate risk. Is, is that? factor in to I mean it would have been good to manage liability risk for for the Fed in in this case uh, I think I mean there by the time we are at zero carbon uh, none of these people have are going to have jobs at Silicon Valley they may be living in a real clean environment but they have
1: no jobs at this point yeah you're exactly right so the San Francisco Fed really fell asleep at the wheel I think a basic examiner test would have went into Silicon Valley Bank realized their balance sheet was a disaster it's frankly uh shocking that the, Silica, or the San Francisco Fed didn't realize what was happening as this whole thing was unfolding. But it also some, raises, raises some difficult questions about the revolving door in our banking system. Of course, Greg Banker sat on the board of the San Francisco Fed. He's the CEO of SVB. We need to have some division between the regulators and the entities that they're regulating. But absolutely, the regulators fell asleep at the wheel here. This is a catastrophic outcome and something the San Francisco Fed should have seen very clearly. Uh, very early on, and they didn't, and that's a problem,
7: Senator. While we have you here, of course, the other big issue in Washington uh, this week and around the country is this: is the debt ceiling, and um, we are getting awfully close to midnight, as they say.
1: Um, where do you think things really stand? Look, I think where they stand is McCarthy and Biden are the two parties that have to cut a deal here. The Senate Republicans can't really drive this process. The Senate Democrats can't drive this process. This is between McCarthy and Biden, and they need to come together and offer uh, a deal. Now, I believe that McCarthy has done exactly that. Agree or disagree with the plan that he's offered, he's at least advanced something that will pay the country's debts and in my view, get us on a more sustainable fiscal pathway. If the Democrats don't like it, that's fine. They're Democrats, they're not gonna agree with Republicans on every issue, but they have to come to the negotiating table and advance an alternative solution. What I really worry about is the the media has framed this as Republican brinksmanship. I think Joe Biden is the one playing games with the country's credit. He's the one engaged in brinksmanship, and his leadership can solve this problem. Sorry, they're wrapping us, but I I, I just wanted to get this in The Wall Street Journal had a piece
6: that if if, uh, uh, former President Trump is the nominee, that even if Biden were responsible when it came right down to it for default, it's still not going to put him back in. Uh, it's not going to put uh, President Trump back in the White that Biden's still going to be reelected. That he sort of is Teflon, and he knows it. He, there's no. He, he doesn't have to uh, acquiesce on this, Senator. That's that's. And I know you're a supporter. I think of of uh, former President Trump. Do you, do you think there's anything to that? Yeah, I, that, I, that he can act with impunity because he, they, they think that President Biden's going to win
1: if it's Donald Trump again. Yeah, look, I'm a strong supporter of President Trump, but I don't think that even a sympathetic media can cover for Joe Biden's failures in this particular case. He is the president of the United States. They have played this game of fiscal brinksmanship for months. The president has refused to negotiate with Republicans, even though Republicans have actually advanced a plan. Uh, So I don't think that President Biden can cover himself in glory here and pretend this isn't his fault. If the country defaults, if the country faces serious economic consequences after we pass the X date, that's on Joe Biden for failing to show leadership here. And I don't think even a sympathetic press can cover that up. Okay. Senator Vance, very much appreciate uh,
7: seeing you on the program today and uh, hope we get the chance to talk to you again very, very soon. Thanks.
2: And that's the pod for today. Thanks for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 Eastern. Follow Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. And let us know what you think. Tweet us. Our handle is at Squawk CNBC. Or if you listen on Apple Podcasts, take a minute to rate this podcast or write a brief review. That helps other listeners discover Squawk Pod. That's it. We'll meet you back here tomorrow.
4: We are clear. Thanks, guys.
0: People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Jenny!